Well, welcome, guys. It's wonderful to be able to greet you. For those of you who are here on the hall, uh, those of you who are at home, those of you who will be watching at 6 p.m., and finally, those of you who will be hearing it on the podcast. It's amazing the many different mediums and avenues that we have to come together to worship God and to sit under his word. Now, I want to talk to you about something really important this morning, something that's very uh, close to my heart and something that I feel maybe we'll share or or kind of uh, explain a little bit about who I am. In my late teens, I was convinced that I would make the perfect MI6 agent. Now, for those of you who don't know what MI6 is, it's, um, so if you imagine like the CIA and then a good version, that's what MI6 is. It's basically James Bond. And yeah, uh, this is basically what I felt I was, I was called to be. This is, this is intrinsically who I was. And there were many reasons why I thought that I would make the perfect spy. First off, clearly, super sexy and can rock a tuxedo. I mean, if that's not a reason enough, then I don't know what is. Clearly, I'm at peak physical fitness. You know, those kind of rooftop chases could nail. The kind of jumping from a car, jumping from a train. I basically do that already. Very handy with a gadget. You give me a jet rocket pack, and I, I mean, literally, I fly. I make a great, and I mean great, vodka martini. But none of this kind of shaken, not stirred rubbish. That destroys it. Bond knows nothing. And finally, I have, well, sorry, I had, I should say, past tense, away with the ladies. How else do you think I managed to convince Hannah to marry me? And so all those qualifications, all those things clearly show you I am, or I should have been, James Bond. And most importantly, I think the missions. If you've seen any of the Bond movies, you know that they always follow exactly the same pattern. The movies always start with Bond finishing up his old mission. He kills the bad guy. He gets the girl. And then he kind of considers some sort of retirement. He kind of goes, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to relax. But then something happens that endangers the world. And he is drafted back in. It's normally the pesky Russians, let's be honest. They've normally got some sort of nuclear submarine or a nuclear train or a nuclear something, and they're kind of, you know, going to blow up the world. And so Bond will kind of be drawn back in reluctantly. He's always briefed by M. He's given an outline of what needs to be done, the skills that Bond will need to employ, and most importantly, the motive behind what it is that he's doing. And then he's off to queue to get the gadgets, the tools of the job that will allow him to perfectly complete his mission. From uh, briefcases that fire, invisible cars, even exploding toothpaste. I always find it interesting that it's the exact right number of gadgets that's needed exactly for the mission. It's not like he has this whole kind of surplus kind of stock that's just kind of left over. And so whatever he's given is critical. So he has his motive, he has his mission, he has what he needs to be able to conduct it, and then he's ready. And he's off to his first exotic destination, and the adventure starts. The most important thing for Bond, though, is that he understands what's at stake if he fails at the mission. Usually it's the end of the world as we know it, and he knows that he must do what he needs to do, that he must use the tools that he's been given to complete it. Now, my dreams, unfortunately, of being a top international spy never really amounted to much, unless, unless this is the perfect cover story. Oh, yeah, didn't think about that. Hmm. 
but what I know I have been drafted into, what I know that I do get to partake in, what I know that I get to kind of uh, be the focus, the mission of my every single part of my life is the mission that God has put before me, the sense of completing the kingdom work that he has given me. So, much like Bond at the opening of his movies, being briefed by M and Q, what would our briefing actually look like if we were to undertake the charge that Jesus gave us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations? Paul gives us exactly this briefing letter as he's writing to the church in sorry, to the church. As H. Ralston puts it in his commentary on First Thessalonians chapter two. The chapter 2 is one of the richest descriptions of a Christian minister or leader or preacher, whatever you want to call it, to be found in the whole of the New Testament. And so today, I want to explore what is our mission brief? What is the job description that Paul has given the church and which has given us today to be leaders, ministers, preachers of the good news of Jesus? But unlike Bond, none of us have the option to sit out. This is not just for church staff. This isn't just for those who maybe preach on a Friday. This isn't just those who lead King's Kids or any of this. But this call is on each and every single one of us. The moment we became a believer, the moment we became adopted as a son and daughter of God, this mission was handed to us. And so today to do this, I want to look at three things. I want to look at the leader's mission, the leader's motive, and the leader's management. For what is important to remember is that these traits aren't just abstract. It's not just like we have this kind of leadership brief that we read and we go, okay, I need to apply this. I need to kind of see how I can incorporate it. But they were lived out and they were displayed first by Jesus and then then by Paul. And Paul writing to the church is impressing on them to remember what they saw, remember what they heard, what he taught them and copy his ways. Great leaders raise other leaders. And today this is still the case. What was it in Paul that meant that in such a short amount of time that leaders were created in the church, uh, sorry, that leaders were created in the church and that had such a massive impact that the whole uh, region around them knew of their reputation? This is what we're going to explore. So if you're making notes, you want to write uh, point one, the leader's mission. So the first area of the briefing that Paul gives us is the leader's mission. What is this adventure that we are being called into? We're going to start at chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The mission that lays before us is simple. We are to declare the gospel. If you're ever unsure about your calling in life, if you're ever unsure what you were created to do, if you're ever unsure of what your next step should be, know that your mission is to declare the gospel. This is the task for every believer, not for a select few. And I know that with a preach like this, and I've sat there, I've been in your shoes, it's so easy to disqualify ourselves. It's so easy to remove ourselves from that challenge and say, this is for somebody else. But that's not what we read in Scripture. That's not what we hear on the lips of Jesus. That's not what we see in Paul. This mission is for each and every single one of us. 
Yet while the mission may be simple, it certainly isn't always easy. As Rob explored last week when he kicked off this series, he explored the suffering that comes as a result of the gospel. And this suffering is something that's experienced at times by, by those who are receiving it, but also those who are willing to share it as well. Paul warns us that this mission is not an easy one. You will suffer. You will be shamefully treated as a result. For Paul, Silas, and Timothy, if you read from Acts 16 all the way to Acts 18, you'll see again and again they're being chased off from city to city as a result of their preaching, of their fulfilling the mission that's been laid before them. Yet anything of worth rarely comes easily. In Acts 17, we read the account of Paul's visit to the church. We read that the opposition to their message was so strong that they were only able to stay for three weeks. But as a result of their preaching, some of them, that's the Jews, because there's preaching in the synagogue, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. The charge that was being made against Paul by the crowd is recorded in verse 6 and 7. And when they could not find them, this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. What an amazing charge to be made against Paul and the newly formed church. These are people who have turned the world upside down. I want to be known as somebody who, as a result of the gospel, has turned the world upside down. And if you think about it, that's exactly what the gospel does in our lives. Overnight, everything changes. Our world gets turned upside down as we start to embrace and live out this new kingdom reality as we unpack what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. The gospel is dangerous. If we truly allow it to penetrate every part of our lives, then nothing is left the same. This is why it's so often met with fierce opposition. I think sometimes we say that actually the reason why there's so much opposition, so much fighting against the gospel, is that people haven't truly understood it. Actually, I think it's wrong. I think people have understood and they see the cost. They see what it would mean. They see the changes that would have to be made if they surrendered themselves into this gospel. And they go, I cannot do it. And so they fight against it. So Paul had three weeks to share this gospel, to raise up leaders and establish the church. This has to be one of the fastest leadership training courses ever in history. The mission was huge, and the only way that this could be accomplished was by the boldness and boldness in God. The mission actually, in fact, is so difficult that not one of us can accomplish it in our own strength. This is a humbling reality that we must face, that we must grapple with. I cannot, in my own skills, in my own strength, in my own ability, achieve the mission. But with God, I have the boldness to endure and overcome whatever may come my way. So now we know the mission. What should our motivation be as we get stuck in? So next, Paul talks through the motives that we should have as leaders, that we should have as preachers, as Christian workers. For we can know the, mo- uh, the mission, but if our motives are wrong, then we will never truly succeed. For this is what differentiates us from the world. 
It isn't simply the end result that matters, but the journey in how we conduct ourselves on the way is so vital and critical. And Paul was quick to share what his true motives were. And remember, they had seen him. They had seen what Paul was doing. And so as he's writing this letter, he's reminding them, remember what you saw, remember what you heard, embrace it, copy it. Starting in verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. We must be truthful, open and straight talking. We mustn't try to hide or conceal or trick people or spin things and try and justify it as necessary politics. As leaders, we are to speak truth, not error. For if the message we are declaring is the truth, then nothing else we should say can compromise the integrity of our words. For we have been entrusted with the most important message that has ever been given in history. Jesus alone saves. That is our message. That is the thing we are to declare. That is the gospel message, the good news that we are bearers of. And so anything that compromises that message, anything that brings it into question or to doubt, we must strip away. Our motive is not our own personal gain, but simply what is best for the kingdom. Our desire is to please God, not those around us. And this means we must have pure motives, that we must allow God to come and examine our hearts and convict us when this is not the case. Verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Our job is not to spin things. Nobody has ever entered the kingdom of God through being tricked or sold a half-truth. This is why Rob's preach last week was so important. The, the gospel isn't this magical fix to all our problems in an earthly, materialistic way. For many, it brings persecution, opposition, a call to live a simpler life. But what we seek to build is kingdom treasure rather than earthly ones. And so our our motive must be to preach the whole gospel. We cannot leave out the bits that are inconvenient. We cannot pick and choose the bits that may culturally sound right. But we are to preach and declare the whole counsel of God, the whole gospel. We mustn't flatter. We mustn't blow smoke. We mustn't try and kind of woo people with kind of um, grandiose kind of words. We must, not lead, we must lead through truth, not manipulation. Our goal is not to become materially rich, though God does love to bless. Our goal is to store up, heaven, uh, to store up treasures in heaven so that when we come and we meet him, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. All of this, this mission that lays before us, is not about enriching ourselves or receiving glory from people. We seek the approval of God, not man. And this is hard. This goes against our humanness. We are, we, there's a certain sense that we're made for kind of approval from each other. 
And it's a good thing. It's good when Hannah compliments me. It's good when my staff like me. It's good when people say I've done a good job preaching. These aren't bad things. But if I live my life for those compliments, if I live my life for the approval of others, it's amazing how quickly it can come in the way of the gospel mandate that is before me. The message we have is not always a popular one. If we seek the approval of man, not God, then there will be times that we end up not sharing the good news because of being afraid of what people may say. We are called to serve and build up one another. We're not simply to go on this power trip, exerting our authority for the sake of it, but instead we desire to come alongside and journey with those that we are leading. The greatest posture in the kingdom is that of a servant. Now think about that. The greatest posture in the kingdom is that as a servant. When we allow God to transform our motives and we seek to follow the example of Jesus, then we know that we can be entrusted with the mission, this great gospel message the whole world so desperately needs to hear. Finally, every good leader needs to have their own code of conduct, their own way of managing themselves and behaving. And these become the boundary stones, the way that we kind of um, embrace the mission before us. Paul says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I love this imagery that Paul uses of a nursing mother here. This sense of care and tenderness. As leaders in the kingdom, this is how we must conduct ourselves. While there is much power in the gospel, This shouldn't be misapplied so that we are abusive or brutish in how we manage ourselves. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you became very dear to us. For this is not just the gospel that we are sharing, but our very selves, our lives, our highs, our lows, our times, our treasures, our talents. This isn't some sort of drive-by mission where we kind of pull up in the car, wind down the window, throw out a Bible and drive off. This is deep incarnational ministry where we give of ourselves, where we share our lives, where we display the transformation that God has done in me then becomes the hope for others. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you where we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We must seek to not be a burden around us. Paul could have so rightfully have demanded that the church take care of him. And yet this isn't the attitude that he went with. His desire was that it wouldn't be about the hearer's ability to provide, that determined the success of the mission, but instead what they could give to allow it to be fulfilled. And I think this is one of the things that we do very well at Well of Life. I think if we, if we think about the, some of the nations we minister into, into India, into Sri Lanka, into Zimbabwe, it's not about their ability to support us, their ability to finance us, but it's about our desire for them to hear the good news that makes the decisions. And so that's costly, that's sacrificial, that means that we choose to operate in a certain way so that our treasures can be used for the kingdom. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. Righteousness and blameless. These are traits that are so sadly missing in many leaders, both outside the church and 
and even sometimes inside the church today. Yet this is the foundation of how we must act. We must constantly be assessing ourselves, our conduct, our actions, to make sure that they live up to the high standard that is laid before us. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. I love the fact that Paul uses both uh, the start of this, this, this maternal image and now moves to this father image. And I think he's doing something deliberate in this. I think he's wanting to show that there is kind of both the kind of um, the, 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 the tender nature of a mother, but also this uh, kind of encouraging and challenging and exhorting nature of a father. Both are needed in the advancement of the gospel. The, the encouragement then as leaders, is that we are to call forth and challenge those around us to walk in a manner worthy of God. I truly believe if we embrace these traits, they help us manage ourselves in the midst of our mission. When we allow them to be the guiding points of how we conduct ourselves, then and only then can we fulfill the mission that God has laid before us. So we've explored the leader's mission, the leader's motives, and the leader's management. And I hope that you feel a stirring in your heart for this gospel adventure that God is calling each and every single one of us to. And unlike Bond, who does it for his own glory, we embrace this mission solely to glorify God, to see his kingdom break forth in the hearts of all those that we encounter. Great leaders aren't born, they are made. And they are made through the crucible of the mission fields. The church only had Paul, Silas, and Timothy with them for three weeks. But in such a short period of time, they gleaned um, from them what godly leadership looked like. Paul's letter to them is reminding them not to forget what they've learned and saw. For us today, as I draw this to a close, it's not necessarily the number of years that you've been following Jesus that will make you more or less ready for the task, but in fact your willingness to learn from those around you to put in place what you've seen and heard, and finally, to allow God to shape you and transform you. Each and every single one of us, whether we're staying here in Dubai, heading back home or going somewhere else, whether we've been a Christian for a month or 40 years, whether we're a part of an official church planters cohort, or serving on a parking crew, or just get here early and have a chat whether we're black or white, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, whatever and wherever we may be, we are the part of the movie where we have been given the mission, we've examined our our motives and we know how we need to conduct ourselves. The decision we have to make is are we going to get stuck in. I want to be known as someone who as a result of the gospel has turned the world upside down. Today, the challenge that lies before each and every one of us is, are we going to play it safe? Are we going to sit this one out and say, no, that someone else can do it? Or are we going to get stuck in? The mission is there. You know what your motives need to be. You know how you need to conduct ourselves. Let's get ready for the adventure and go. Amen.